0: My job is just to uh, put <laughs> what we're doing in the context of the Buddha's teaching. That's um, In terms of his own particular passage, Buddha, uh, remember that one of his awakening moments, like when, when he first sort of begins to get this um, disaffection with uh, life, is with uh, the ordinary way that he was living was when after a party he saw everybody dishevelled, puking all the usual stuff that you see after a party <laughs> and he's, he saw these bodies and stuff hanging around and it brought a certain uh, disgust about the whole body to him and the, the way that um, the body draws you into indulgence now that would have been his understanding when he practiced these mortification exercise that he went into. There would have been a presumption that the body is really the one to blame. So if you didn't, if you didn't have hunger, you wouldn't have greed, full stop. You know? So when you look at all our appetites, uh, basic appetites, our sexual appetites, our eating appetites, all that sort of stuff, it's all grounded in the body. And it would seem that the signals come from the body and therefore it's easy to make the mistake that well it's the body that's at fault and somehow I've got, to, I've got to subdue the body I've got to keep the body down and in doing so I can control the body and in doing so I can control the mind and uh, to a certain extent I think that's, that's true but that sense of controlling the body is again coming from a centre within us which presumes it has this, this, this control right, and that's one of the definitions of self, right, one of the definitions of self is that I I am in control Hmm? and uh, what happened to the Buddha in his fasting, mainly fasting um, was that he just got terribly thin and almost uh, seemingly took himself to a point of death he talked about holding his spine through his stomach (laughs) so that's pretty thin and uh, at some point he came to recognize that these exercises weren't actually getting him anywhere in the sense that he was still suffering. So that's the point. So, having done those exercises, he came to the conclusion that they were useless, they weren't on the path to liberation, and they were actually suffering, they were actually causing suffering, even though, while you're doing them, there may be a release, a temporary release from hunger. Uh, I, those of you who fasted know that after two or three days, You tend to, there's no appetite really, the body's, you know, just feeding itself, frankly. So, uh, that was his own, you know, personal rejection of a philosophy or an idea which was current at the time, that it was through uh, mortification of the body that one became liberated. It was the body that was holding the spirit down, this, this atta, this self, you see, and once that was done away with, then it would be liberated. The next thing, of course, that, uh, the next big awakening moment was seeing these three, what came to be called, uh, messengers from the gods, which is basically sickness, old age and death. And as the myth goes, I'm sure you know it, he's out on his little hunting party and he comes across somebody who's sick, some, then there's somebody who's very old and, and rockety, rickety, and then somebody, who, a corpse. And each time he says, what is it, and will it happen to me, you see? And it was that connection with what he saw as being something horrific and himself that drew, shall we say, a certain horror about life, about his situation, recognizing that all beings move towards death one way or the other. If they grow old enough, they just get very sick uh, and, and, uh, and lose energy and all that sort of stuff. So it was that connection with the body that made him seek the end of suffering because it manifests, suffering in that sense manifests in the body. And uh, his first effort was to escape the body completely through what we now call the jhanas, the absorption states. So in so doing you're creating a mental state and I think he would have understood at that time that the, the mind, uh, or it was understood at that time that the mind could separate from the body. So if you if you began to engender these beautiful states within within yourself through mantra practice uh, through breathing just watching the breath calms the body etc calms the mind and you go into these beautiful states that therefore uh, either upon death or or if you were clever enough before it you would leave the body and enter one of these, these realms you see and again to his disappointment um, while he was in those states no problem when he came out he was still Sad sack, he was still depressed, old God, 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 yeah, uh, Gautama, you see, Siddhartha Gautama. So uh, he then begins to practice in a completely different way through uh, recognize, through really um, you know, this memory from childhood where he's watching his father doing a plowing ceremony. That memory awakens in him a way of observing the body, a way of actually investigating the process. Rather than trying to do something with it, rather than trying to change it, he actually discovers a way of just observing it. So in a sense, he's entering into a scientific field. He's entering into a psychology. He's interested in how does suffering arise. Right? He's, left, he's left that uh, question as to why. Because when you ask why, you start getting into metaphysics. You start wondering why it is, why do all beings suffer, that sort of stuff. But when he actually draws himself into this mode of observing his mind, observing his body, the question that's coming up is, how does it come? How does this happen? And uh, that's where he eventually uh, you know, becomes liberated, and through the liberation, uh, begins to describe this dependent origination. And dependent origination always begins at the point of contact and main, the, the, the main point of contact is this is this contact between the body and the mind so it's not as though what, what uh, the Buddha said that there was a mind made body it's quite clear about that there's a physical body and a mind made body and this mind made body has the same characteristics as the physical body in the sense that it's not permanent it, it, it itself is a, um, a collection or a, an aggregate of energies. It's not substantial, but it's still something separate from the physical world. And that of course goes against our um, received wisdom from a lot of um, materialist scientists these days, who reduce everything simply to you know, chemicals and what's measurable. But in the Buddha's understanding, they were two different forms of energy. And I think we contact this other form when you contact your own chi, because I don't think that's measurable by any scientific standard. But you can feel it, you can feel the energy. And uh, <coughs> that, that, um, that energy can then move into these um, uh, these mm-hmm. mental, uh, what do they call them, uh, powers, such as healing. Healing is, a, is actually a mental power. It doesn't belong to the physical body. So uh, the, um, that separation of the body and mind is one of the first insights that you have on the, on the trail of liberation. In the, in the process of what we call the Vipassana insight process, the first thing is to recognize that the body and mind are actually two different systems. And when you look into the body, uh, I think one of the first things that sort of surprises you is how little you actually experience of it. Unless it, it goes wrong, and then you, you might feel a pain or something. But there's lots of the body that we're completely unaware of and haven't a clue how it works. Uh, just a simple thing like uh, toenails. <laughs> I mean, you're not, a t- you're, you're not a toenail as you would, say, be an emotion, are you? You can see it, you can feel it, but it's only on the outside. You can't sort of get into the toenail. You can't mm. be <laughs> in that sense a toenail. And yet there it is, growing, just like our hair, or like mine was. And it, it just, it's just growing, and we haven't a clue, how, you know, what the process is. We just presume that it, it, it knows what it's doing. And we also know that um, uh, things like the marrow of the bone uh, is, is constantly creating red, red corpuscles. But, I mean, you know, when we breathe... Uh, We're told that there's this exchange of carbon dioxide with oxygen but did you ever experience that? See what I mean? There's there's a whole, there's a whole, uh, there's there's a lot of things that the body's doing which we're completely unaware of and it's being seemingly guided, it's being um, uh, uh, run by systems that we are completely unaware of, these autonomic systems. Uh, one of the most amazing things that, that I came across is the way the eye works, because when you look at a picture, the eye seems to be darting here and everywhere, if you look at the, the picture of the eye actually moving, but that's, but, and it's picking up little pixels and sort of taking them into the brain, but what we keep seeing is the whole picture, we don't see the eye moving at all, it's the most strange thing. And then the, the brain is able to create a picture which it then somehow launches back onto the retina so that it gives us the impression that we're actually seeing. We're actually seeing the whole picture or we're looking at the whole person. And we haven't a clue that all this stuff's going on, but it's not for you know, uh, clever little cameras hidden in pictures watching people's eyes. <laughs> there's, there's one at the National Gallery that shows you how, how that happens. So... It's that, uh, as, as you begin to investigate the body, even at this intellectual level, you begin to realize that you're an alien within this frame. Like there's this sense of me. Huh? You've got this me, me in there, but it, it's, not, it's not in control at all. And that's, how, that's why we're, we're, we're terribly upset and baffled as to why illnesses arise within the body, over which we, we not only have a control, but didn't even know it was there you know, um, autonomic diseases, you know, um, you know things like multiple cirrhosis and stuff, where the body seems to just do its own thing. I uh, had a, a student down in Gaia House, and his, his body started eating his own liver. Can you figure that out? For no apparent reason. I mean, they got drugs to sort of delay the process, but it was... It's that whole business of suddenly recognizing that whereas a, as, as a child we we think we are the body, we are the body, there's no distinction really in our minds. slowly he's going to realize actually there is this sense of self, there is this sense of a me, a presence within this body which... You know, it can it can superficially move the body about. You, know, you can wave your arms in the air and stuff like that. But when it comes to the real things that you do want to be, have control over, which is the the health of the body and the longevity of the body, and we don't particularly want to die, uh, no controls ever. And that coming in contact with that may raise within us, you know, these fears, these anxieties and whatnot. And what that is measuring is this delusion that the Buddha talks about as to where is this me? See, where is it? So, in the Buddha's teaching, the investigation of the body, the contemplation of the body, is absolutely crucial in undermining this essential delusion about who we are. See? I mean, the other delusions are, you know, to think that we are an emotion, to think that we are feelings, to think that we are thoughts, See, so the high, if, if, you, if you look at it from more of a Western point of view, there are, there's the body, there's the heart with its feelings and emotional life and all that, and there's the mind with its thought life. And through meditation, through your vipassana, you, you're taking an objective stance outside these three areas and recognizing that there's a distance between that which is observing and what's being observed. And it's that distance which is, as it were, informing this, that which is looking, that it's not that, you can't be that, you can't be an object, you can only be the subject. (laughs) So these exercises that we were doing, uh, the one about the repulsive nature of the body is right there within the discourse on how to establish right awareness, in other words, right understanding, leading to right understanding. And that, um, that particular exercise is a, uh, an interesting uh, occasion in the scriptures, which is rather strange, really, in terms of the Buddha's general teaching, where some monks have been practicing this repulsiveness of the body all through the rainy season. That's three months thinking about how repulsive the bodies. <laughs> and uh, he sees them coming towards him, and maybe has a discussion with them or whatever, but he recognizes that they've gone over from uh, seeing the body as repulsive to actually being repulsed by the body. There's two different things, right? What we're, The reason we're doing that exercise is to go beyond disgust of the body, right? But we're not... If you go too far about the repulsion of the body, to to your dismay, you may find you get, you're getting more disgusted <laughs> with the body. So it's a case of... To, uh, investigating the body to catch that sense of disgust that we have about it or the, the sense of ugliness we have about it and then to allow that to pass away You see, so that we then become equanimous with the body the body is just as it is and we're perfectly content with the way it is that's where we want to get to so he saw that maybe they'd gone over the edge so he gave them the practice of loving kindness towards the body you see and you know all these tales end off marvelously they all became fully liberated through this practice (laughs) the 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 script the the commentaries always uh, gloss that with after 25 years (laughs) in in the in the forest or something like that so uh, the exercise that we were doing at the beginning concerning uh, you know the business about finding areas of the body that we have this disgust towards that may be a too strong a word sometimes, but it's the it's the only word that sort of gets across that visceral feel about certain things of the body. And the the bit about our self image, you see, just to go, we're, we're using it to actually get in contact with the fullness of that self image that we have of ourselves, and then to allow the feelings around that self image to to really come up stru- to come up clearly in the mind and to observe them, and observe them long enough to see that in fact they die away, because you're no longer feeding in to that delusion. See, And that's important. If if these feelings of disgust or uh, fear and all that sort of stuff around the body come up, and we don't wait long enough, we don't see that the process of just observing, just feeling, just allowing these things to express themselves, is actually a therapy. If you, if, you, if you stay until they come up strong and then you say, well, I've had enough of this, and walk off, <laughs> then you may be under the impression that actually all you're doing is just lifting up the disgust and feeling disgusted all the time. So these exercises have to be taken, you have to sort of practice them, until you see that in fact it's fading. You, if, you've got the, if you've got the patience to stay until it completely faded, that's even better because then that really is undermining the conditioning. right? But if you haven't, at least to see the way it goes. That's not only within the body, but of course within our emotional life. So when we feel depressed or we feel anxious, if we can just go into the body, see, forget the mind, the mind, remember, emotional states are always developing themselves through the mind. That's how they develop themselves, through stories. Hmm? That's why when you go into Vipassana, the, the teacher is not at all interested in your stories. Right? They're, they're either historical, whether they're true or not, they're, they're not actually part of the process of healing. It's letting them go and getting down to the root feeling of it that's in there, the rooted mental state, emotional state, allowing that to arise and to let it ex- express itself, to expend itself. And in so doing, you see this, this fading away. See? So that's how it also works in terms of just our emotional life in general. Right? Just to be able to hold on in there... And wait for it to slowly fade away. Hmm. So uh, that's that's part of the, the teaching around dukkha, which means suffering, right? Hard to bear, hard to bear. And uh, there are three types of suffering. So the first one we've been discussing is is what's called the dukkha dukkha. It's the suffering of su- is the suffering of ordinary pain. And with that there comes the pain that is caused by identity which is when we uh, contact, which we contact through sickness, old age and death. And that's a very strong meditation. Um, I mentioned this business of the charnel grounds and the cemetery meditations. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those paradoxes that if you spend a moment every day just contemplating one's own, um, the possibility of sickness, old age and death, um, and then to... You always have to balance it with loving-kindness towards yourself. It actually has the ultimate effect of taking away irrational fears about sickness old age and death. One of the things about sickness is that the mind produces a future. So as soon as you're sick, it's always going to be like this. You know, As soon as you've got, as soon as you've got something wrong with the body, the mind immediately creates this huge plan where you're going to keep suffering forever. But actually, when you come down to the experience of the sickness, just as it is in this present moment, all you have—and I'm talking about just ordinary illness—I mean, obviously, there are some which are extraordinarily painful. All you have is discomfort and some disability. Like you, could, you know, you have to—you like, have to get out. You can't do what you normally do. And when you when you come into an ordinary illness, I'm talking about flus and colds and, and uh, say things that aren't so bad, yeah. When you come into that sort of present experience of the illness, it's okay. But the mind wants to go beyond it. The mind, first of all, is very negative. It wants to create this terrible future. It's going to get worse. And secondly, it wants to escape. So we're constantly in contradiction with what's actually happening. But when all that goes and we just clear the mind of all that and we just sink into the present moment and that's why there's this constant reminder to be present in the present moment. What you find with most illnesses is, is this discomfort and a disability. And it's bearable. That's the point, it's bearable. There are very few illnesses that you know one would consider to be completely unbearable. You know? And um, I mentioned this morning when pain gets to a point where you know, we're not learning anything from it, etc. Then, you know, it's, it's it's good to put an end to it. Try to put an end to it. Uh, and I'm not suggesting there that uh, in 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 in, um, in extreme cases one should uh, commit suicide. That's always a moot point in uh, in Buddhism. Generally speaking, it c- it's quite clear the Buddha didn't didn't support suicide. But there are two instances which uh, you know which uh, should we say. Uh, are interesting (laughs) one is of a monk who is despairing about his practice and in his despair he kills himself and when the Buddha comes along he says that no he's in that moment of dying he actually became liberated so one presumes that even in that even in that desperate moment just to be able to take the position of the observer and to actually see what's happening in a very clear way would liberate you from that uh, from delusion, but I wouldn't chance it. Right? I, wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't risk it personally. And the other one is, a more uh, an interesting one, is of an Arahat, who's fully liberated, who is suffering, obviously from some very severe, very painful state? And in those days, of course, they wouldn't have had uh, anesthetics in the sense that we have. So in that terrible pain, he says to the Buddha, he's going to take the knife, that's how he would express it, and he kills himself. And the Buddha didn't say, the Buddha doesn't make decisions for you. If you, if you watch the Buddha, he doesn't, if you come to the Buddha with a question, he doesn't say, don't do this, or, he just says, do what you think is fit. So in other words, you're the one who has the responsibility. You don't go to the Buddha and say, what would you, what would you tell me to do? He's not prepared to do that. See. He always says, well... You do what you think is fit. So so he, he commits suicide. Um, but you have to be careful of that because uh, th- this 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 particular uh, person was fully liberated. So I- in a sense, one has to put a question mark over that. Hmm? So that's looking at it from the point of view of, of suffering, the suffering which is caused by pain. And the distinction we have to make is th- is pain is pain coming from the body, and it's not suffering. Once we can get that angle on it, of observing it, allowing it to be, relaxing around it, being open to it, then it, it doesn't, it's not actually causing suffering. And the second thing is this dispense this of, uh, of impermanence. One of the things that the self uh, defines itself by is that it's permanent. You yeah. know, it never changes. Uh, it's always happy. I mean, that's how you define a spirit or self or a soul or something. And um, the whole process of observing impermanence is one of the routes whereby you can liberate yourself. So, just to bring it up, uh, you know, as, as a daily little meditation that you know things change, everything changes, um, stops you clinging on to things, stop you stops us from expecting things to be as they ought to be it's us which put these oughts and musts on on situations but it's just relaxing around that and accepting that everything is impermanent everything is in a process of change and that this change is it's impossible to know in any absolute sense which way something is going to change because there are so many factors that come into any given situation so you simply don't know and resting in that situation of don't know is very difficult for us because yeah? one of the things that the self wants to do is to be in charge, to be in control and if you want to be in control, you've got to know so all these little things that come up for us are quite little awakeners which which point to this essential delusion that lies within us hmm? now the gift of uh, you know um, investigating dukkha investigating this sense of suffering that we have about things is of course uh, happiness right? because you move towards being at ease with the world as it is one of the gifts of um, impermanence is that you begin to let go much more easily and you begin to realise in the Buddha's world that there's nothing in the world worth holding on to and if you keep repeating that to yourself, let it sink in there's nothing in the world worth holding on to worth holding on to nothing in it it sort of sinks in that there is actually nothing in the world worth holding on to and that makes us very easy with things and it it, it expressed itself through an easy generosity an easy forgiveness you don't hold on to things and then finally there's this self this, this idea of who we are. So, the investigation of the body is constantly undermining that, that basic identity. And it's understandable it comes to us at birth. Uh, very shortly after birth, at some time in early childhood, there's a growing idea of me as opposed to something else. Uh, I mean, they, they tell us, um, you know, uh, psychologists tell us that up to about the age of four, we don't seem to have an object. It's just one mass of swimming sensations. And it's all us. There's no distinction between me and somebody else. Then out of that looms the first object, it seems, your mother. And then we move to this point where everything around us is objective to us. So by the age of, I don't know, somewhere between two and three, I suppose, one is quite clear that I'm me and everybody else is not me. <laughs> might not phrase it like that, but it's quite clear. But that, uh, that child is, is entirely the body there's no distinction between somebody, somebody in the body observing the body They're, they are just the body and I, uh, I, I say you know, I often say well if you want to know what it's like to be a body self right, just catch the next time you trap your finger in the door see, because just for that one glorious moment you are the pain <laughs> there's just that complete flooding of your consciousness pain, you are the pain See, that's the body self and that's why I think physical pain to uh, children is, is all the more acute than it is to an adult. Now all we're doing in this process of liberation is turning the inside world into an outside world. So just as the child has turned this complete me into something objective, the world that it can feel, see and talk to, so as we move inward, that's all we're doing right so this body is the the walls of this room yeah? so you're looking at the walls of your own inner self you might say and the atmosphere of the room is your emotional life yeah? and all the pictures and writings and all that are your thoughts and when they all come together you get this i uh, you get this human being but by observing all that you're finding a very different place within yourself and that is the observer, the feeler, the knower, the experiencer, Uh, it has that level of consciousness, has the ability to both understand and to feel, and yet to be quite objective to what it's experiencing. And that objectivity, seeing the inner world as objective, is the process of undermining the delusion that we are the body, we are sensations, we are emotions, we are thoughts. Hmm? So this, the, uh, the exercises that we were doing uh, was really also to do, especially the one about sickness, old age and death, uh, observing that, getting in touch with that, is that process of deconstructing the whole of the world that we are creating and beginning to realize that there is... Uh, Something within that which has this power to understand and this knowing um, is what what actually liberates itself because the delusion lies in the looking the delusion lies within the way we relate and that is in our understanding and the understanding is this knowing this, uh, this, this part of us which is our pure intelligence that's why I call this place Satipanya because Sati is that is the passive form of the enlightened of the of the enlightenment, which is that which receives, and that's why the exercise we do in standing is so important because it's actually developing that open-minded, open-hearted reception mm, without any barrier. And the panya is the intellig- is that very same faculty which sparks and understands the way things are. So one is passive and one is active. The panya is described as an, intu- an intuitive faculty. So often you get this translated variously as intuitive awareness or awareness with intuitive intelligence or whatever. But that's the Buddha within. That's, that's what we are. That's what's becoming awake. Eh? That's what's awakening to its circumstance. So uh, in doing these exercises, the the, the, the the ones to do with um, sickness, old age, and death, and the disgust and the ugliness, and then, and then also forgot to mention the business where you recognise that uh, we are depe- a lot of our happiness is dependent upon the actual sense body, hmm? and once you realise that, you realise that there's potentially a lot of suffering. So this exercise is trying to undermine that by recognize- by as it were, recognising that we don't have control. And in not having control, we have to accept the way things are. And in that acceptance, there is the peacefulness. So, always make a distinction between acceptance and resignation. Resignation is saying, well, this is the and I can't do anything about it, and it's all horrible, and I may as well go and jump off a bridge. I mean, that's resignation. But acceptance is, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. And in seeing the way it is, always something arises. Some potential arises. Because... Everything's moving. Everything's changing. Yeah. Uh, and so, finally, having undermined these uh, different uh, misunderstandings about how we create, about you know what happiness is, etc., about impermanence and permanence, about self and not self, um, we then have to, as it were, um, begin to take that understanding into an attitude. And that attitude uh, is one of reconnecting with the body and that's why the love is so important. Because now having distance from the body and having seen that it's capable of creating a lot of suffering for us, we then have to go back into that body and embrace it in all its fullness. And that's the same with the mind. When you open yourself up to uh, these negative emotions within us and we're allowing them to express themselves. We then have to return to our emotional life, our heart, with loving kindness to embrace it. And the same with thoughts. So in so doing, we are developing a a different relationship to um, the experiences that we're having in the world. And it's based upon this acceptance of the way things really are, the openness to allow the things that really are to express themselves, and then to pour back into the situation uh, a really good energy. And that's the purpose of, of the exercises we're doing specifically to the body. But uh, when we're doing vipassana and then we end with metta, we're doing it for the heart and the mind. See? And very slowly, you see, there's this uh, development. Development of the spiritual life. That's what we mean by the spiritual life. As opposed to a simple, you know, psychotherapeutic life or a physical, a life based on just your physicality. See? The word spiritual is a bit, uh, you know, it's got all sorts of tags attached to it, but it, it's about the only word I think we have which makes sense. I mean, th- the other one you might use is, um, you know, the, the growth of consciousness, but these days that's becoming really sort of um, somehow confused with the contents of consciousness. So it's all these words, you know. But it becomes clear to us through our practice. It becomes clear to us through our practice that there is something within us which can be entirely objective to the body, heart and mind, to the whole psychophysical process and yet be completely at one with it. And that's why when you're in meditation you're making this effort to objectify everything and to understand everything. When you're doing meta, you're redirecting, but when you get up, you see this is the point, when you get up, and that's why I stress it in the work period, your attention and care go into what you're doing, and there's a loss, at best, there's a loss of a sense of somebody doing something, you see, and that's enlightenment in action, that's the, that's the process of awareness in action. I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. (laughs) May you be liberated from all suffering and delusion and enter into that blissful state of Nibbāna, the deathless, sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening.